Hey everyone, welcome to the Faith Chapel Podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Well, hello, buddy. My name's Nate. If I haven't met you, welcome, welcome, welcome. Everybody who's online, thanks for joining in. And especially, maybe this is the first time you've tuned in, the first time you came into this church. I know it can be terrifying. You have no idea what's going to happen to you in there. Here's what we want you to know. It's a safe place to explore a dangerous message, okay? So we want you to be able to ask your questions, but you got to know the message can kind of upend your life, what we're all about, what Jesus came to do. So welcome. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at just this book, the scriptures, and in 2022, we've got the whole year where we're going to kind of look at the major threads, and the hope is that at the end of the year, whether you're a veteran or whether you're spiritually unresolved, we're all going to have an elevated understanding of scripture and what God is doing. But our base is that we're gonna spend several weeks just talking about the Bible. So here's week number three. Last week, we looked at a couple of concepts. One is that it's better for us to consider the Bible as a library rather than just a book. So the Bible never calls itself the Bible. It refers to itself as scriptures or text or word. The Bible is written over a 1,500-year period, at least 40 authors, 66 separate books. And when we come to it, we realize that through those 1,500 years, there were different literary tools that were used. There were different ways that people communicated. And so when we come to the scriptures, it's good for us to think of it as like a library with different genres. All of it is pointing towards the same thing. All of it has this message of who God is and who we are, but it does it through different literary tools. And we also looked at this idea that this is the only book in the world, only sacred text that I am aware of that says this book came together through this incredible, inexplicable union of God and human beings. So there were no golden plates. There was no like completed Bible, you know, found buried in the desert. Is that the scriptures came together. We read from Second Peter last week. Is we're told that the spirit of God breathed or animated breathed into human writers. And what came through was this divine message. So God used human beings as a tool. So the Bible's not afraid to say, hey, this is a a divine work that God used people, human beings, frail people, to come out with this incredible book that has changed the culture, that has changed worlds, that people base their morality, their hopes on. So this is what I'd like to look at this week. I want to address this question. What is the purpose of the Bible? What is the purpose of the Bible? And the Bible has lots of different purposes, of course. But I think in our kind of North American way of thinking, we tend to be very, very individualistic. And there are a couple conclusions that we can come to that aren't broad enough to answer that question, what is the purpose of the Bible? One is we can come to this conclusion that the Bible is primarily a morality book. So it's primarily there to teach me how to live, what to do, how to make good decisions. And that in part is true, but that's not big enough. That really isn't big enough. Um, 
in our way of thinking, we can read the Bible to think, well, here's what I need. I need to figure out how to be prosperous, okay? So I'm going to read the Bible to figure out how to be more prosperous. I, I need to figure out, like, how to have a happier marriage or happier relationships. So I'm going to look for 14 principles. A lot of times it's even taught this way. This book is, if you want to find the best version of you, find this book. Like this will help you be the real you, the best you. Now all that is true, but that is not the primary purpose of the Bible. I want to give you point number one, then we're going to read from the book of Luke in a moment. So number one, the Bible's primary purpose is to know who God is. To know who God is. You know how the Bible begins? In the beginning, God. (laughs) The subject of the Bible is God. Now, there are a lot of things there that help us understand who we are. We'll get to that. But if you want to really understand the Bible, I have to get away from this thinking of, I, I need the Bible to, to like be primarily about me. When you want the Bible to be primarily about you, you tend to warp text and try to make it fit you. What we want to do is when we come to the Bible, we're like, hey, this is, this is the story of God. If I want to understand the nature of God, who he is, what's important to him, we find that in the Bible. So to know who God is, who we are. Okay, so there are a million different perspectives on what human beings actually are. Like, are you just a biological entity? Are we more than this? The Bible tells this tremendous story beginning in Genesis chapter one that God made human beings in this unique way, different from the rest of the animal kingdom. He made them in his image. I mean, you could spend a lifetime unpacking what does that mean for human beings to be made in the image of God, who we are and how we relate to each other. Okay, so I bet there is not I don't want to exaggerate, but I bet there's not a day in my life that goes by where I don't reflect on Genesis chapter one, two, and three. Here's why. Because Genesis chapter one, two, and three gives me a filter, a perspective to understand the world. So in Genesis one, two, and three, here's what I begin to understand. I begin to understand who God is, why I'm here. Everybody always wants to know, like, what's the purpose of life? Genesis 1, 2, and 3 gives us, here's your purpose for life. Is you're meant to reflect the glory of God. You're meant to work for him. It helps me also understand, why is this world so painful? Why is, why, why is there brokenness? Why are relationships difficult? Why is there disease? Why is there abuse of power? Um, all these things that are so confusing. Why is work frustrating? Why do I feel distant from my creator? Genesis 1, 2, and 3 helps me, first of all, understand who God is. Then it begins to help me understand who I am and all the complex relationships that exist around that. So every one of us, okay, you and I have a worldview. That's what we call it. It's like a perspective, a lens by which we see things. Here's what the Bible wants to do. It wants to be the lens by which I understand the world. Now, here's the tendency. We tend to put our worldview here and then read the Bible through it. And like, I'm going to understand the Bible according to my worldview. The whole point is to say, no, no, no. I want to understand what the world's about, who I am, what the nature of evil, why there's suffering in the world. I want to understand it through the lens of the scripture. So the Bible is used, is, is primarily for that purpose, to give us perspective. Now, I want to read from a really unique passage of scripture. 
It's from the book of Luke. Luke is one of the biographers of the life of Jesus. It's the very last chapter of his book, Luke chapter 24. And Luke is the only biographer of Jesus who captures this account. None of the others like even touch on this. It's this really unique situation. Here's what's happening. The week before had been unbelievably tumultuous. Jesus had come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. We just mentioned that as we were taking communion. So he had, he had come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. There are these crowds that are welcoming him and all of his followers have this building anticipation and excitement that Jesus is going to be the answer to all their hundreds of years of prayer, what they called the Messiah, the promised one was finally here. And they're just like, it's gonna happen. We're gonna be free. Just as our ancestors were freed from Egypt, we're gonna be free from the tyranny of the Roman empire. And then it, just like that, it all changes. Jesus is arrested, he's tried, he's beaten, and then he is executed. And all of his followers who had this profound hope that the world was beginning again, that Jesus was the answer to thousands of years of prayer, they're watching Jesus die on a cross and they're utterly heartbroken and disillusioned. What happened? And then three days pass. And a group of women go to visit the tomb of Jesus and it's empty. And they're told by some angels that he's not here, he is risen. And then his primary disciples run and they say, sure enough, there's an empty tomb. And so like think of in, in, in just a week long period, how tumultuous this is. So these disciples are filled with grief. They're filled with potential hope, confusion. And now in Luke chapter 24, we have two of these disciples who have just lived through that week. They're absolutely confused. They're walking together seven miles from Jerusalem to a little village called Emmaus. And in the midst of their journey, two disciples trying to figure out what in the world is happening. We're so disappointed. We're potentially excited. We don't know what's happening. Jesus joins them in their, in their journey, okay? Let, let, let's read together from Luke chapter 24. We'll begin at verse 13. Now, that same day, day that the resurrection, like Jesus might not really be dead, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So they've got probably a two and a half hour journey as they're processing this. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. I'll pause there for a moment. This happens more than once after Jesus is resurrected. The, and it's not like he's wearing, for all, like anybody who's read too much Harry Potter, he's not wearing like a, a cloak of invisibility and there's a voice and they're like, what? He is literally with them, but the resurrected Jesus has this capacity to like interrupt their neurons. And they look at him and they're like, we have no idea who that is. Right, wouldn't that be awesome? Like, you, you know, like cloak of invisibility. I come up, hey, tell me, what do you think of Nate Petzl? And they tell me, I'm like, it's me, right? You find out what's really going on. And so Jesus comes in and he's, he's, he's uh, they're inhibited. They can't see who he is. He asked them, by the way, this is another thing that Jesus does. He asks a lot of questions that he already knows the answer to, <laughs> okay? It, not a bad way to have some sort of dialogue, spiritual dialogue in, in general. It's like, 
let people, let people talk about it. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still. I mean, this touches something incredibly sensitive in their lives. They just stop, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Jesus, what things, he asked, okay? Then they go on, we're not gonna read that portion. They go on to say, listen, we had our hopes that the Messiah had come. We had followed this man. We had seen him do extraordinary things. He taught about God in a way that made us come alive. We thought he was the Messiah. We watched him die. And then there's the reports that he's resurrected. We're just utterly confused. And so Jesus, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I love this. I don't want you to raise your hand when I ask this question, but I want you to raise your like a little internal hand. How many of us, when we've read the Bible, have felt foolish or slow? Like you just read certain things and you're like, I don't, I don't understand. All right, you're raising your literal hand, yes. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that this could explain just about anybody who has a relationship with the Bible. That there are portions that we read and you feel dim-witted, right? You're like, I, I don't get it. I don't get this. It. It's, it's confusing. You feel foolish. Okay, I love this. I love this for anyone who has ever felt a little bit slow or foolish when they read the Bible. Here's what Jesus does. Here's what Jesus does. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? So they read the whole Old Testament. You kind of missed out this whole suffering issue that's there. They just read about the conquering Jesus. And beginning with Moses, okay, Moses is the uh, author attributed to the first five books of the Bible. So we're going to the very beginning, Genesis. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, the explanation, explain to them what was said in all the scriptures. Okay, the, the totality. They don't have the New Testament. That's about to be written. But he, says, he explained to them in all of the ancient scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so on, concerning himself. Concerning himself. Here's, here's what I just I love about this text. Um, you're on your journey, Okay. And I know we, we recognize, we call it being spiritually unresolved. Some of us are early in the journey. Some of you are decades down the journey. I'm on my journey. And as I'm on my journey, I'm trying to understand the world. I'm trying to understand who God is. I'm trying to submit myself rather than uh, project my worldview onto the Bible. I'm saying, no, no, no. I want my worldview to be defined by the Bible, but I'm going along and there are certain things that are confusing to me. There are times when I feel a little foolish, when I feel a little bit slow. And here's this beautiful image that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, joins us in our journey. And he asks us a couple of questions. And he takes our slow processing. And he says, let me teach you that everything here 
is pointing towards me. Let me begin to connect the dots. You know how, like when you're a kid, you go to a menu, you know, a restaurant, and there's a menu and it's connected dots and you go from like dots to a picture to an image. That's what Jesus has the potential to do, to take people like us who are like, okay, I see all the dots, but I do not understand what is happening. Jesus just takes guys like Cleopas and whoever the other disciple is and says, let me connect the dots. You know what this is called? This is called revelation. Okay, revelation. If all I'm doing when I interact with the Bible is trying to cognitively figure out what is going on, I will always come away feeling a little foolish and a little slow. This means that the God who authored the Bible is willing to come alongside a student of the Bible who doesn't get it all, who says, I'm not sure about that, and say, let me tell you how all of this comes together. So what's gonna happen this week? You're gonna be on a journey to somewhere. It could be, hey, I'm on a journey to Walmart, or uh, I'm a, I don't know, you're gonna read the Bible that morning, your day is a journey. Maybe you, you have a business meeting in um, Miles City. For all of you who are watching online and thinking about moving to Miles City, Miles City is about three and a half hours uh, east of here, it's gorgeous. It looks just like Glacier National Park. If you're moving to Montana, you want to move to Miles City. <laughs> you're on your journey for your meeting to Miles City, okay? And the risen, resurrected Jesus sits in your car with you. It begins with Moses and all the prophets. It begins with the text that you read that morning, the text that has just been eating at you, creating doubt. And he says, let me teach you. Let me go beyond your capacity to understand. Let me give you revelation. Let me connect the dots that you cannot connect by yourself. So one of the main purposes of the Bible is to help us understand what life is truly about, who God is. And Jesus joins us in the journey. Last week we talked about Jesus promising, I'm gonna give you my spirit, my representation will be there to tutor you, to teach you, to remind you of all things. And so this spiritual journey is not dependent on my cognitive abilities. This spiritual journey is dependent upon me. I just wanna ask questions and I wanna invite Jesus to come in and to begin to teach me. Now. Uh, I, I want to take a moment and address some of what can be so challenging for us. If you're reading the Old Testament, there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. And oftentimes we just get a bit befuddled by some of them. Have you, have you read any of those? And you're like, do I have to do that? Right? So like a couple examples. I, I would like to check the tags on everybody's clothing right now. Because there's an Old Testament law that says you may not wear any clothing made out of mixed blends. So like if you're half poly and half cotton, right? If you're like a wool blend, mm -mm 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 -mm, it's got to be one or the other. And we like read a law like that. And they're like, how does that point to Jesus? Right? Good question. Um, there's an Old Testament law that says, well, first I'm going to ask, how many of you have house plants in your home? Naughty people, naughty, not. There's a law that says you can't have any living thing in your house. You're like what? But then we read something like the Ten Commandments, like don't lie. Sounds good. Don't murder. Yeah, 
That one's still applicable. So how do we deal with this as we're reading through Old Testament law? I think it's helpful to realize that there are probably different categories of the law. And if we understand that one, think of some laws as being moral law, moral law. Moral being, they're based on God's nature. They're unchanging. They're things like what you read in the 10 commandments that whatever era you're living in, you don't, you don't want to lie. Like, you don't want to murder. And then there's some laws that would be ceremonial. They were given specifically to the nation of Israel. They have to do with, like, uh, rituals and feasts and celebrations. It's very particular to their culture. And then there'd be another grouping of law, which would be, we call it civic law. It's, it's like hygiene laws. So here's an example of that. Book of Exodus, <laughs> you have, like, a half a million people wandering through the desert for 40 years. You imagine going camping with a half a million people for 40 years. There's literally a law that says when you need to do number two, you need to take so many steps outside of the camp before you dig your hole. Okay, like are you going to try to put that into practice right now? No, but if you were camping with a half a million people, do you think that's a really good rule? Like, yeah, 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 that's a good rule. That's a good rule. So how do we deal with all of these laws? There's this fascinating passage that, that um, Paul writes, he's writing it to a group of people who live in a, a region called Galatia. And this is what he says regarding the law. I think this might help us as we're thinking through this. Before the coming of this faith, so this new reality with Jesus, we were held in custody. Think of that word, custody. Now don't think of prison. Like if you are arrested by the police, you're held in custody. This is a different word, is guardianship. Okay, we were held in custody under the law. Locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law, the, the, the ancient scriptures, was our guardian. The word literally is used for a household nanny. Same word. Someone who oversaw, made sure everything was safe, kids were, were fed, protected. So the law was our guardian or our nanny until Christ came that we might be justified by faith, no longer according to just stringent obedience to the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So part of as we're reading this text and you come across interesting cultural things, you're like, am I supposed to do that? Here's what Paul says, you wanna understand the law. It was important, he's not dismissing it, but he says, until Jesus came, like the law, set about parameters to keep us from self-destructing, to keep us from behaving according to our instincts and our own desires, that the law would like create something that I'd bump against and go like, okay, okay, okay. But he says, now that has been removed because with Jesus, you now have the capacity to walk with him. The spirit is within you. The, the, the governance of your morality can come from the inside out. So he's not dismissing it. He's just saying, it's not the same. You find a really interesting case of this in Acts chapter 15, where this is the first official big church meeting where they've got to work out doctrine. In Acts 15, you've got churches now made up of two different groups. You've got the Jewish people, and they still are trying to carry out most of the Old Testament law. And you've got the non-Jewish people, and they're really stuck on one big issue. Okay, and it's, it's been a challenge to church growth. Is the Jewish people say, hey, one of the big themes in the Old Testament is that all males have to be circumcised. It's like a sign before God. And all these Gentile guys who just like 
they want to follow Jesus, they're like, what? Nobody told me that. Like, I really like Jesus. I want to follow him, but like, are you serious? So they have this huge discussion in Acts chapter 15 and they walk away and they say, you know what? That was a big thing. It was part of our guardian, but we're not going to require that from anyone. So they go up the list. It's kind of a weird list in Acts chapter 15. One makes perfect sense. So here's what we're going to ask the non-Jewish people to do. One, no sexual immorality. So Rome had a completely different sexual ethic. They said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, have, we're going to ask all believers to live this really conservative stance of a man and a woman within the covenant of marriage. And that's our requirement. And then here's the next three. You don't even really have to worry about them. Don't eat any animals that were strangled. Okay. Don't drink any blood and don't eat any meat that was offered to idols. And that had to do with a very specific cultural thing that throughout the Roman empire, like how did you buy your meat? You bought your meat, it was offered to the ancient Roman gods. And they said, let's just like, let's not do that. Let's not associate with that world, okay? So how do I do this? Well, ask Jesus to come alongside wherever you're at in your journey. Jesus, I'm reading through things that are thousands of years old. I don't comprehend. Would you teach me just like you taught these two people on the road to Emmaus? Now, I wanna skip to point number three. Point number three. What is the purpose of the Bible? To shape the people of God into the image of Jesus so that we can participate in the ongoing story of healing and renewal. So the purpose of the scriptures in large part is to shape me, to bring change within me so that I can think more like Jesus, be more like Jesus, act more like Jesus, and I can then be a part of his ongoing story to heal, to restore, to love, to bring forgiveness, to bring beauty to the world that we live in. I wanna read from 2 Timothy. This is an absolutely beautiful passage of scripture that is gonna give us this emphasis, okay? Um, Paul's writing to his friend Timothy. Timothy's a he tends to be a very passive person. He's a pastor. And I, I think he probably did what most pastors do. This is a great temptation for pastors is that I read this book and I think about Sunday. <laughs> you know, like, oh God, what are you gonna, like Sunday's coming, right? <laughs> like, what, what do I talk about tomorrow? And, and, and his mentor writes back and he says, I, I don't want you to think about the Bible as something that you teach. I want you to think about the Bible as something that teaches you, teaches you. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know uh, those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is, this is like where he gets to the meat of it. All Scripture, okay, the totality of it, Remember, Jesus just taught them from Moses through the prophets. All scripture is God-breathed. Now, we have a whole bunch of English words that start with I, infallibility, inerrancy, all of these things. Here's what Paul says. All scripture is God-breathed, theopneustos in the Greek, meaning God breathes it into existence. Just like he breathed human beings into life in Genesis chapter two, he breathes scripture. He's still breathing scripture. When a disciple of Jesus opens up the Bible, he's breathing new life 
into us. All scripture is God breathes and is useful. What's the purpose of the scripture? It's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I, I love that um, Paul uses the imagery of um, a sculpture, an artist taking a block of stone and he's chipping away at it. Here's part of what the purpose of the Holy Scriptures, what it is in part, is to shape me. Because God has a plan. When I become a follower of Jesus, I'm not just getting a ticket to heaven, I'm joining in the restoration of this planet. And this is what Paul says to Timothy. He says, God has all these opportunities for you. Like you're unique. You have a a social context that no one else has. You've had experiences that no one has. And as we look forward, what God is doing on planet earth for everyone, everyone, you have a unique part to play. And how do you get ready to play your part? Through relationship with the scriptures. As I'm moving along in life, Scriptures teach me because I'll be shaped and informed by culture, by my education, all those things. None of them are evil, but I want to be, I want to be taught by scriptures. I want to have the values scriptures have that may not be popular in, in my current cultural context. So he says, it'll teach you, it will rebuke you. Now what's a rebuke? A rebuke is like, hey, that's not you. I, I didn't create you to treat somebody that way, to say those words. I didn't create you to have that kind of thought that's moving. In. You're, you're, you're different than that. You're different than that. It's this point, I don't know if anybody's had that, where like, like the scripture just, it just challenges you. We call it being under conviction. Like I read something and I'm like, oh my goodness, I've got somebody to apologize to. I've got, I've got a change to make in my life to rebuke, to correct. Correct is more like um, I'm moving down a path and the scripture goes, hey, how about we take a different path? Okay, that's not where we're going. And, and to train me, to train me. So this idea that you have a life to live, you have a chance to be the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus in a way that I never could. I don't know the people you know. No one else does. And so God has, there's going to be a crisis in a friend's life. There's going to be a challenge. And this is how I get prepared for whatever God wants me to do. So that the servant of God could be thoroughly, not partially, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If I want to carry out my assignment in life, this is how I do it. I allow the text Teach me, train me, correct me, rebuke me so that I will be prepared as I come to this moment in life with a friend who is going through a crisis, with a leader who is harsh or abusive. The scripture has already trained me how to handle this. I've already been corrected and rebuked so that I can be a representation of Jesus in this moment. I've gone through my own pain, right? And the scripture has comforted me in the midst of it. And when I come to somebody else who's experiencing a similar pain, I've been, pre- I've been prepared. 
I've been trained because that's what the scripture does. So here's what I love about this. This perspective is this. It's not about me dissecting the scriptures. It's about the scriptures dissecting me. Right? So you can read the scripture and go like, I'm going to try to figure this out. I'm going to try to outline all that. All those can be helpful tools. But in the end, here's what I think we want. We want, all right, God, whatever you want to say through the scriptures, you have my permission to correct me, to rebuke me, because I, I don't know what's right and wrong, to train me, to prepare me so that I can carry out your assignment for me here on planet Earth. You will be shaped and formed by something. Let that something be this book. Don't let it just be your family of origin. Don't let it just be cultural norms. Let this book have the shaping influence on your life so that we can be a part of a bigger story. I wanna close with this quote from N.T. Wright. I love this. I think he encapsulates the thought. The Bible isn't simply a repository of true information. Okay, so we, we sometimes think that like, it's just this huge repository of true information. True, it's not just a repository of information about God, Jesus, and the hope of the world. It is rather a part of the means by which in the power of the spirit, the living God rescues his people and his world and takes them forward on the journey toward his new creation and makes us agents. Listen, Christianity was never meant to be a spectator sport. It makes you an agent. The truth in the scriptures makes us agents of the new creation even as we travel. I want to end with just these questions. Number one, how can I see Jesus as I read the scriptures? How can I, in the midst of my journey, to and from work, whatever experiences we're going through, how can I say, listen, I don't want to try to figure this out myself. I want the resurrected Jesus to show up alongside of me and teach me what this is all about. Question number two, do the scriptures truly shape my understanding of the world? How can I grow in this area? So we have a worldview and some of it, I got to tell you, is not biblical. It's not. And what we want to do is say, hey, I, I, I want to be willing to give up on things that I think I've been convinced of, but I realize they're not from this book. I want this book to shape my perspective on who God is, what life is all about, what I'm here for. The third question is, how am I, how am I and how can I be shaped by the scriptures? How can I have this interaction where there's just permission every time I pick up this book? God, you can, you can like knock off whatever corner needs to be knocked off. How can I be that pliable? How can I be that receptive to say, when I open the scriptures, I'm just expecting something. I'm expecting the living Jesus to teach me. And two, I'm expecting training and preparation because later that day I might face something. And if it's not for this book, I'm not gonna know what to do because I'm an agent in the story of redemption that God is carrying out on this planet right now. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. 
If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.